History on the Rocks is pretty straightforward. Three adequately intelligent drinkers drinking custom drinks and discussing history, cocktails, and the history of cocktails. A dash of academia, a splash of old-fashioned curiosity, and a generous pour of whatever's in the liquor cabinet were three friends looking to inform, entertain, and have a good time. Cheers. All right, so the theme for this week is preservation of things that probably shouldn't be preserved. Or, you know, depending on your point of view, maybe they should be. Um, so uh, this is Tori, and I'll be talking a little bit about um, the Massachusetts Blue Laws, which uh, for all of you listeners not in Massachusetts or other states in New England, um, you're probably going to think we're pretty antiquated. Uh, we are in Massachusetts. Um, right now, the Blue Laws are mostly concerning uh, labor laws, things like protecting employees from having to work on national holidays, making sure people get time and a half when they they do have to work that those holidays. Um, but previously, and this is still hanging over, they also controlled a lot of liquor distribution. distribution. So um, those are kind of starting to go the way of the unicorn, but not as quickly as most of us here in Massachusetts would like. Wait, they got rid of the unicorns? <laughs> ah. They didn't tell you that, Marco? Well, it... As long as I can still drink, I guess it's okay. You can't drink unicorn blood anymore. Well, shit, there so, goes my plan for long life. None of us here at History on the Rocks endorse drinking unicorn blood. Apparently you can't anymore anyway. <laughs> so, the blue Thanks, laws... Obama. <laughs> so, blue laws were started up in the 17th century, and the, the main storyline, the like public view of the blue laws, is that... They must have had something to do with religion. So, like, Puritan sensibilities, right? They didn't know, they didn't want anybody to drink. But it had far less to do with preventing people from drinking than it did with preventing people from re- being drunk in public. So mm. Puritans actually were super into drinking. Um, the the ship... That, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ship that bought, brought uh, then Governor Winthrop over had, like... 50 gallons of bourbon on it or something like that wasn't it it, this might be this might be wrong it might be like anachronistic but i read something saying that the the mayflower had more beer than water in its storage yeah i mean well because water went bad yeah so it's reasonable but right so the the beer would be safer to drink right so in those days it tastes really funky though yeah, pretty pretty much any ship that you're you're going to be on is going to have more alcohol than water because mm-hmm. the water is not going to stay potable for your like months long trip across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. But the beer is just going to get tastier and tastier. Exactly, and don't knock the funkiness. You like sours, Kelly? I know, I do like funky. I like sours, so I'm down, let it get I'm funky. I'm down with the funk. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's carry on. <laughs> so anyway, again, they these people. Early Puritans were really just concerned about preserving their community. Like, they didn't want people to be drunk on the day of the Sabbath. Mm. So, like, that was a day of rest. They really respected that. It did end up having religious connotations just by association, but that was not the original um, the original intent, intent of that. Um, and one of the actual original blue laws had more to do with price control. So rather than just allowing any bar to set the price at whatever they want, they actually made it so that they couldn't be charging you more than a certain amount for a glass of beer or a, gla- or a shot. So um, these laws were kind of super stagnant um, all the way up into basically the 1900s. Um, so this is like right before Prohibition. And this is when um, there's this modern sense of 
not wanting to drink alcohol because alcohol is bad. Mm-hmm. Like it's morally reprehensible. Right. And it's um, kind of, it's one of the, the ironic things about the temperance movement. It wasn't about temperance. It was about really abstinence from alcohol. Right. Because yeah. temperance is what the Puritans were practicing by controlling the alcohol, limiting when you could drink it, but it's still a big part of their day-to-day life. Right. There was even, I think back then when they were trying to advocate for temperance or for abstinence, actually, they would obviously look to the Bible to try and get support. And I remember reading about this. They would change, basically, you know, Jesus turning water into wine. They didn't dispute that. They just said, well, then he didn't drink it. There's no evidence that Jesus actually drank the wine. He just turned the water into the wine. It was, well, dec- it was decorative wine. <laughs> and also, <laughs> why would Jesus drink the wine? Isn't it his own blood? Well, that's a different blood. That's last is that the summer. unicorn blood? <laughs> in fact, it is. <laughs> but uh, this well, on the this... blood you get in church is wine that's been blessed, so it becomes Christ's blood. But so. even then, the the wine, the water that he turned into wine, was not the same as the blood, the the you know of his body, like that, the whatever. Because that's different. That's that happened right. like way before. What right? happened before crucifixion? Yeah. yeah. Also, I'm going to say I was brought up Catholic, so that's the Catholic perspective. If you're Protestant. I'm pretty sure you don't actually believe it turns into blood. No. Okay. Right? Trans- it's transubstantiation. Transfiguration Transfigura- is a, yeah. is a no. subject in Hogwarts. <laughs> Transmogrification. <laughs> Transmutation. Uh, so Tori is not especially religious, but... Tori knows more about the Harry Potter universe than she does about God. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's two different two different instances of wine in the Bible. That's the Last Supper. Is he Wasn't it Last Supper that he was like, oh, this is... You drink this, it's as if you're drinking of me or something weird. Right, this is my body and my blood, yeah. Yeah. So the temperance movement, not at all about temperance. Uh, So that's when this started to shift away from just limiting when you could drink alcohol too. Yeah. I mean, I think we have started to establish this trend of people uh, using historical stuff and establishing that like in the way that they want it to be read versus Mm -hmm. in the way that it actually was. So they were probably like, oh, this is pretty convenient. We can just tell everybody it's about that. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Why, and maybe I'm completely missed this, why is it called a blue law? Do you know? I don't know. I was thinking that too. Um, So the claim on Snopes is that American blue laws were so named because they originally printed on blue paper. I didn't didn't hear about that at all. Um, So they're saying that... True or false. Um, so no, no one has turned up 17th century sheets of blue paper or blue bound books, nor has anyone found any 17th century references to these regulations as, quote, blue laws. The earliest recorded use of the term didn't appear until well over a century later when the Reverend Samuel Peter's 1781 book, General History of Connecticut, general history, uh, described onerous colonial laws in the following manner. Blue laws, i.e. bloody laws, for they were all sanctified with whipping, cutting off the ears, burning the tongue, and death. That is and, not what they do when you break the blue laws yeah. now. <laughs> so, I still, Dill does not explain. So, okay, so the term is most likely derived from an 18th century usage of the word, quote, blue, as a disparaging reference to something perceived as, quote, rigidly moral, uh, such as blue nose, for example, is one who advocates a rigorous, rigorous moral code not from the color of the material in which the laws themselves were printed. Oh, so that actually makes sense in the context of how blue laws started mm-hmm. as sort of just general moral prescriptions. And they were brought up later. You said about 100 years later, mm-hmm. they started being called blue laws to be described as overly rigorous moral precepts. Right. So if they had been, 
if it had been discussed in the 1950s for the first time, it would have been square laws or something like yeah, really, yeah, everything really goofy. Everything depends on the context. Mod yeah, laws, yeah. <laughs> so we're back to blue laws, and for the the rest of this history, we're going to be mostly focusing on just this one rule that used to prevent liquor stores in Massachusetts from selling liquor or any type of alcohol on Sundays. Um, so in the we're getting into the 1950s now. Prohibition is way over. Um, and it starts to become a problem for Jewish delis, kosher supermarkets, um, those types of places, because they were observing their own Sabbath on Saturdays. So since they were doing that and also being uh, forced to comply with the blue laws, they were having to be closed on Saturday and Sunday. So they're really losing out on a huge chunk of their business. And their non-Jewish counterparts the bigger supermarkets rather than like the more family styles are able to remain open on Saturdays because they don't observe the Jewish Sabbath. So in 1961, um, a Jewish deli brought, ended up uh, taking a case to the Supreme court actually. And it was combined with a couple other cases that had happened, but they went all the way to the U S Supreme court um, to be like, this is, this is unfair. How are we supposed to, Mm. how are we supposed to stay in business? So um, this case was brought to the Supreme court. And Justice Warren, writing for the majority, said this common day of rest that we have on Sundays is should be protected. And so it is fully legal to prevent the sale of alcohol on Sundays. And so even though this has seems to have a lot of religious connotations to us now, in that opinion, he actually wrote that religion was, quote, irrelevant to his decision but that it was this, again, back to this community preservation where we have a common day of rest that we should continue to observe. Yeah, because what I was going to say is the Sunday Sabbath is a very, it's a Christian tradition. So you're favoring one religion, right, as far as this Sunday Sabbath. Hang on. (laughs) But I guess what he's saying is that it had become such an ingrained part of just American culture that it was no longer religious. It had just become sort of a it had become a secular day of rest too, and that's how he's just correct. I mean, look at it even in the context of something as pervasive as the calendar. The calendar that we use, the way we measure time, is based on the death of Christ. I mean, academics use a different term now. They'll say BCE before the Common Era era instead of BC before Christ. But that's what I use. Yeah. 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 So before Christ or before the Common Era. Yeah, it's common era and then before common era, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. That's It's kind of one of the similar ideas in ways that a religion can become so pervasive in culture that even secular things, you're not even really considering their ultimate yeah. relationship. Yeah. And a, a lot of the other blue laws that are still on the books, like having a weekend and mm-hmm. getting time and a half on Sundays are, you know, in that same vein. Um, when was the Massachusetts blue law repealed for alcohol sale anyway? So in 2004, the ban to sell liquor on Sundays was repealed. Um, and it wasn't totally repealed because it was still totally illegal to be open or sell alcohol before noon. Um, so Mm. just, you can go to the liquor store, but they're only open like 12 to five. Something like that. Um, and it wasn't until... 2014 that this sale on Sundays was moved two hours earlier. So liquor stores can now open on at 10 a.m. on Sundays. You know, we're still, so this is 2014. This is 300 plus years after the pilgrims and these laws still are very, very slowly changing. 
Um, and so we just actually had a brand new law, like it's April now. So three months ago in at the end of last year, um, they decided that they were going to allow the direct shipping of alcohol in Massachusetts. And for those of you who live in like California or basically any other state, you've probably been ordering cases of wine on the internet for years. Mm-hmm. Um, we were never able to do that. And so there are a lot of strict laws surrounding that here and they're not totally clear um, since that was just allowed um, technically at the very end of last year. Um, there are a lot of regulations around there that people are sort of like cloudy about. Um, so for instance, technically on your packaging, it has to say this package must be signed for by somebody who is over 21 mm. and they're supposed to check your ID when they deliver the package. Wow. Uh, my roommate a couple years ago, or I was living, so this was like last winter, maybe um, she got wine delivered and they didn't ask. They didn't see our ID or whatever. And it did have a sticker on it. Mm. Um, but so there's still a lot of this weird, like irrelevant. Is it irrelevant? Are we breaking the law? Who really knows? We're just going to keep doing this until, until somebody says something. So there you have it. This week on History on the Rocks, we just exposed a crime. <laughs> yeah. I won't tell you, uh, tell you after. No names. We, we will contact the We're authorities. basically on par with the jinx. Yeah. Present by Jim, by this HBO. Is, this is Bob Durst level stuff. Yeah. So, actually, Kellen, mm. you're going to find this super interesting, which I had to hold back from telling Kellen this in the car because I was very excited about it. Ooh, secrets. Guess who was possibly very a very major player in this law coming to pass that would allow us to get direct shipping of wine? Direct shipping of wine. Robert Kraft. Close. <laughs> so, Drew Bledsoe. Oh, wow. no way! Yeah. Um, so, what? if you guys don't know, QB of the Patriots, 1993 to 2001, yeah. owns a winery. Yeah, in, like, Seattle. He's, yep. like, a high school football coach in Seattle right now. Oh, yeah. Wow. Drew. So, he owns a winery, and he was, like, super psyched to share all of his wine with his Patriots buddies who live in Massachusetts. They were, would not let him ship ma- his wine to Massachusetts. So what they think is that he was like pretty instrumental in talking to the, you know, powers that be about making this, taking this law off the book. In in Massachusetts. That's amazing. So I actually read a story too about Tom Brady getting his wine, getting Drew Bledsoe's wine shipped to Tom Brady's father's house. So that he could go and get it and like bring it back to Massachusetts with him. California. Yeah, yeah, right. But Tom Brady's dad drank the wine before Tom Brady could pick it up. It must have been good. Good job, Bledsoe. Yeah. So if anybody (laughs) wants to know, maybe next week we'll uh, get some direct shipped Drew Bledsoe winery wine into History on the Rocks. In other parts of the country, again, this direct shipping of alcohol not a huge deal. Um, But I alluded a little bit to these like kind of weird laws that. People know nobody knows how to execute this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're not super strict about the way that they write the laws. So, actually, just a couple of days ago, I found out that there is now an alcohol delivery service that will deliver to most places in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the way that they get around this like kind of murky law that's not totally explained is that they work with liquor stores because liquor stores have been able to ship. Mm you know, for a while, you just have to pay for a license and there's like all kinds of hoops you have to jump through. But so, yeah. So the, um, this service, they don't actually ship it directly to you. You go on their website, you order what you want, and then they'll arrange with a local liquor store to actually get 
those items shipped to you. So next time, maybe we should try it and just, uh, you know, order up some. The first thing on this page Speaking is Coors Light, with, which we will definitely yeah, not I mean, be ordering, it's the greatest but. thing if you're already drunk, you can't go out and drive, you, you don't want to get up because you're feeling lazy. So it's it's saving lives and it's convenient. Well, I, I mean, mean <laughs> people are really saying that it's not saving lives because they're saying that this is so convenient for alcoholics to mm. get liquor delivered to their house that it's going to just be so easy for people to slip into that, you know, rock bottom zone. Well, I was trying to look on the bright side, but okay, I see what you're saying. Well, I mean, that's what they're saying. So people are mad about this. No, it makes sense. It's maybe we shouldn't make it too convenient, but at the same time, I just don't want to go out to the liquor store, Tori. (laughs) Yeah. And this service actually will, um, they'll give you, uh, you know, red solo cups, Seltzer, orange ping pong juice. Balls? I don't know if there are ping. Let me just because if they sell ping pong balls, they've got the college market nailed down. Yeah, but I bet you anything. Like if this service wants to remain on the up and up, they can't really deliver to a, a college party. They'd have to check the ID of literally That's every person true. at that party to be legal. Yeah. That's a good point, and I hope they do that. I mean, still, it's pretty new. I don't, I don't know what their practices are. Yeah, so they do not have ping pong balls. They have ice and plastic cups. Well, you put okay. it here um, first, folks. They need to start yeah. selling ping pong balls. <laughs> well, I mean, you brought up another point, though, Kel, yeah. which is that I don't know that this is a law in other places, but Massachusetts also has this law where um, if you are a minor drinking in the house with somebody over 21, that person who's over 21 is responsible for you, basically. Um, as a semi-related uh, transition <laughs> there you mentioned this being a local Boston area thing well there is a, another local area Boston uh, store craft beer seller which we went to earlier today uh, earlier this week who and they sell idle hands craft ales which they are located in Everett I think and uh, I'm drinking tonight Patriarch, an Abbey-style table beer, and it is phenomenal. Everything yeah. I've had from Idle Hands has been phenomenal. Yeah. So I highly recommend Patriarch. It's a really nice saison. Yeah, I mean, basically everything. So Craft Beer Cellar does not only sell Idle Hands. They sell pretty much any local beer and tons of not local beers. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that store is in Belmont. Um they're awesome. We love them a lot. Very knowledgeable people over there. But Idle Hands, we're going to be heading over there probably in the next couple weeks or so. So we'll try to get some Ooh, yeah. info mm-hmm. from them um, and, you know, tell you guys about their process. Because they do some really cool stuff over there. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a Brute beer that I really want to get in on. Yeah, I want to um, try these Brutes or Brutes, whatever you call them. The, the unhopped beer. Oh, the Gruit. Oh, you're Gruet. thinking of Gruet. Oh, yeah. What Gruet. we're talking about is um, it's like a beer brewed in the style of champagne. Am I getting oh. that right, Cal? I think so. Oh, a brute. Okay. okay. Yeah. 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 B-R-U-T. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely, everything I've had from them has been has been really superb. So I'm looking forward to that brewery trip for sure. And I should probably say I started off, Tori and I started off, with just one ice cube and smoked maple bourbon whiskey from Knob Creek. So we started off hard tonight. Now I'm having the what is this called? It's the patriarch. patriarch. Yeah. I have patriarch. Yeah. So this this bourbon, if if there's one patriarch, I'm okay with. <laughs> yeah. Feminism. So <laughs> this Knob Creek bourbon that we're drinking, um, I don't know. We might do an episode about this later on about the uh, supposed uh, shortage of 
straight bourbon whiskey that we're about to enter into here in the United States. Um, but this bourbon, I, I liked it. I thought it was, um, pretty sweet. So it's got that definite maple syrupy flavor. It was a little bit syrupy on the palate for me. Very sweet. Um, Yeah. I think it's kind of in that family of what is really becoming popular now, like the Jack honey or the, or the fireball, definitely a very strong flavoring that helps you drink it neat or on, on the rock as we did here. (laughs) Uh, they were really tiny glasses. But um, I thought it was okay. You know a lot more about bourbon than I do, Tori. So yeah, I mean, I mean, even I, there's so much more to know. But mm-hmm. what we did do the other night was we mixed this with a cider um, for our tipsy canoe. So if you guys haven't checked that out on our website, I definitely recommend getting in on that recipe. Um, with the uh, hard cider, it was actually very, very delicious, super drinkable. Um, you know, it's just the right amount of sweetness if you combine it with a on the tart side of an amber cider. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we decided was the kind the of category spot. that we're we're looking for there. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'd encourage you guys to check that out. With the the preservation theme tonight, I was going to jump in next uh, with a little something um, not as palatable probably as the as the alcohol related blue laws, but it's really interesting. It's on the science end of of history, um, and it has to do with preservation of human remains. This is going to be a real winner. Of a, That's of one a of my favorite hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell our podcast listeners. <laughs> okay. Remember how we were talking about exposing law breaking? Yeah. This is not one of those times. Just so everyone's aware, Marco's real name is not Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> no. No, I got it changed a long time ago. And I'm not using air quotes. <laughs> So the first thing I wanted to talk about today is something that I discovered on, um, I just learned about a few few years ago, and I had mentioned it once or twice just in casual conversation because this is the kind of thing I mentioned in casual conversation. <laughs> and I, I had learned that really, a lot of people were totally unaware of this really cool phenomenon, which is called bog bodies. And so it's pretty crazy. I'm just going to start with one of the stories behind it. Um, I'll start with one which is, it just happened in May 1950 in Denmark, rural Denmark, um, where some villagers were actually cutting peat uh, in a peat bog for fuel. And it's kind of, you could look at peat as almost like a precursor to coal. It's just a partially decayed vegetable plant matter that had been compressed over time and not quite coal, but it's still a really good source of fuel. Has anybody ever been to a peat bog? No, Just I out of curiosity, because I have. Really? And they smell so bad. Yeah. And I, so this is a hilarious story that I, like, I think basically blocked out of my memory until just now in this moment. <laughs> but um, in fifth grade, we had to go on, it was called the environmental camp. And it was like a week long field trip with all the people that were in our class. And we had to live in bunks with our teachers and our classmates. And this is like a nightmare for me because I am not a popular kid. And, um, and I think it was on Cape Cod. Like, I have no idea where it was. Cape Cod. But I remember going to the beach, and I also remember there being wetlands mm-hmm. and woods. So, like, I can't really imagine uh, where where it was. I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of trying to piece together this uh, X marks the spot kind of map in my head. Mm-hmm. But there was a peat bog, and it was, like, right in this wetland marsh area where, you know, the salt water and the mm-hmm. fresh water are combining for a really unique environment. That's what you want to teach your fifth graders. And we were walking through the peat bog, and... My foot went straight down into the peat bog, oh, and no. I'm buried like up to my fifth grade thigh, just one of my legs <laughs> in peat. 
Oh. And I'm like at camp and it sucks and I'm like crying because it's raining and I'm covered in this like smelly no. brown <laughs> sludge. clay sludge goo and it was just awful and I don't, I mean, I'm, I guess I lived it down because I'm the only one that remembers it apparently, but you know, when you're a kid, those things are devastating. And so it's, it's a good thing you were able to get out of there. Because if not, you may have uh, 5,000 years from now <laughs> been discovered as a bog body. So, I mean, I would be interested, Tori, in learning more about where this was, if there's any way you could find out, because peat bogs are kind of a really specific um, type of environment. Um, they are typically in more northern, colder climates, so New England would definitely count, but I don't know that we have a ton of peat bogs around here. Um, they're very common in northern Europe, um, Scandinavia, uh, Ireland, UK. So, back in 1950, Many, many years before Tori's scarring experience. <laughs> um, so these Danish villagers were out, you know, working hard, trying to cut some peat to, to fuel for their for the fuel for their homes when they were cutting into about six feet of it, which is a lot. It takes a long time to accumulate that much peat. And one of the women who was digging um, made a really horrifying discovery, uh, which was a, what appeared to be the fresh corpse of a man with what was very clearly a noose around his neck. And they immediately freaked out because they found a body, right? And there was actually a kid in the neighboring town who'd gone missing, and so everyone was on high alert, and they're like, oh my god, we just found the boy who went missing. Call the police. Everyone freak out. So uh, they did all those things, <laughs> and the police came, and the police were like, whoa, is this a body? What's going on? And then the, pe the police are looking more closely into this body, and they're like, mm, something maybe doesn't quite exactly line up here. Uh, we think we need the scientists from the local archaeological museum because this is not a fresh body. And so this, was, uh, this happened close to Tolland, Denmark, and this body that was discovered is now called the Tolland Man, and he was found almost completely naked, except for two things. Um, the noose, which was made of like a very rudimentary hemp rope. And then he also had this wool and sheepskin cap, um, which is not in the fashion of the day <laughs> at all. Um, but the really cre creepy thing, and the reason they found it that he looked like a fresh body, is that his face was so well-preserved that um, they could even tell how recently he had shaved before he died because so of the guy, stubble. This guy face. looked like he had just died and fallen. Pretty much. I mean, he looked, he definitely, like, it, it's, it's kind of gross, but what happens in the environment of the peat bog is there's a, it's basically the, the human body gets tanned, which is almost like a, it's like a leather process. Yeah, preserving leather. Right, yeah, tannic, yeah. tannic acid. And so he looked, um, I mean, if you go to a wake, you're not going to be like, oh, this person could have been a peat bog. No, um, not the same thing. But they definitely look like, okay, this person could have been buried. They could, this could have happened recently. So how old was this body, Kelly? Um, well, they had some trouble uh, figuring that out. Um, this was around the time that uh, carbon dating became a really reliable way. But because of the really crazy environment of the peat bog, um, it took them a long time to accurately date him because of all the crazy carbon decay of the, of the decomposing you know, vegetal and animal matter around him kind of contaminates the body. So they would like sample one part of his body and it would be like... 100 BC, and they would sample another part, and it would be 500 AD. What they ultimately did find is that he's about 300 to 400 BCE, um, so very, very old. And they thought that he was a fresh body, which is the crazy part. So 
this happens um, in a pretty frequently. Um, there's been a lot. Uh, there's been like something like two thousand bodies that have been discovered in this way. There was one um, where uh, they discovered one, and they thought that. It was this famous drunk from the town, like, 80 years before, who'd been wandering around the peat bog and then was never heard of again. And they found this body, and they're like, hey, it's that guy. It's the, you know, drunk Eric, or whatever his name was. Oh, Eric. <laughs> right. Or, like, Red, Red Eric or something. Super, super Please never, never nickname me Drunk Tory. Drunk Tory. Oh, Drunk Tory went missing in the peat bog again. <laughs> Yeah, so this, I guess it had actually happened that some British guys uh, were went out carousing and they ended up falling into the peat and dying, so they like, looked at that as a legitimate possibility that if you drink, there's a strong likelihood you could fall into a marsh and die. <laughs> so yeah, guys, alcohol, don't mess around peat bogs when you're drinking. <laughs> do not get your alcohol delivery service to deliver to your peat if bog. If you live on a peat bog, do not order your alcohol. Leave that peat bog to get your alcohol. Or... <laughs> Don't or maybe do get it delivered so you don't have to walk by the peat bog. You really shouldn't be living on a peat bog. I think it's worth getting at here. So it, it's it's pretty nuts. I mean, the thing is, because of the way the body's been preserved, like you can see the people's face and you know what was in the contents of their stomach. And so they actually think that for a long time, because they were finding these. Uh, bodies that had been kind of were having like these crush injuries and they thought oh wow this person was blooded into death and it turns out that wasn't really the case it's just the weight of the peat had actually like compressed some of their bones yeah that's cool and what they actually think is that some of these um, very very old uh, people were um, leaders or kings of their of their group um, because like, they didn't find signs of hard labor on their hands. And the things that they had in their stomach were really rare. So, like, they would look and be able to analyze the, like, pastes and, you know, plant matter that was still in the person's stomach from wow. 2,000 years ago. And they're like, well, you know, this particular plant seed wasn't actually in this area. So it would have taken a lot of effort to get that from all the way over here, 300 miles away, all the way to here. And so what they think is that it was actually like a ritualistic sacrifice of this person was a leader and maybe they were having a really bad um, harvest or maybe they were, you know, not able to hunt deer or something. And they thought that, okay, we're going to give this person up to, you know, the nature, the bog, and hopefully our fortunes will change. So they uh, gave this person a last meal of super fancy seeds. Yes. (laughs) Is that that odd? I don't don't understand your point. (laughs) I mean, I feel like if I were sacrificing somebody, I would not and I had a bad harvest, I would not waste my foodstuffs on them. Just as a quick wrap-up, it's pretty crazy how when they discovered these bodies, they actually, uh, especially in the early 1900s, late 1800s, they didn't have the techniques to preserve them. So, like in the case of the of the Tolland man, like only like part of his hand and, or foot and his face remains and stuff. So, like, after 3,000 years in the bog, he just, like, began to rapidly turn to dust in the yes. way that I would imagine a vampire would if he was exposed to sunlight. Exactly like that. Similar Ex- thing happens to old books that are have been locked up for a long time and then are exposed to oxygen. They mm-hmm. just rapidly oxidate. They, yeah, rapidly oxidize right. and they just fall apart. Yeah. Um, so I guess the same thing's happening to the bodies. Kind of, yeah. And so it's kind of crazy that this natural phenomenon can preserve things so incredibly well and then we you know, exhume these people, whoever they were, and well, then they go away. It's because it's the environment of the bog is 
I think the word you had used when we were talking about this before was anaerobic. Yeah. So the, the bacteria that are working on breaking down the plants around the body are not using oxygen to metabolize these materials. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's um, basically, it's a particular type of moss. And it's a type of, it's called sphagnum moss, I believe. And um, there's a bunch of different kinds of it, but it basically will only decompose to a certain point when it's deprived of oxygen and it compresses so much. Like mm. I said, it, it, it will, six feet of it is, you know, thousands and thousands of years. <laughs> it accumulates like a millimeter and a half per year or something like that. So it's a really slow process, but... It's highly acidic. This sphagnum moss is highly acidic. And it is, um, as it decomposes, it creates this incredibly um, anaerobic environment, lack of oxygen environment, that the combination of the acid and the anaerobic environment just creates this really weird preservation. So yeah, not only do the sphagnum mosses retain water really well, helping to maintain and even expand the wetlands because peat bogs will expand over time. They just kind of take over everything in its path. Um, but they'll also, uh, like I said, absorb um, the positive ions of calcium and magnesium, and then that helps to acidify the environment. So now is there like a, a program in place if they find a bog body, like there's a hotline you call or something, <laughs> like they try to get it as quickly as possible? Well, I mean, they, nowadays we do have better ways of preservation than they did in 1950. So bodies, I don't really know of that many that have been discovered. Um, there have been like bones here and there discovered, like a fragment of a pelvis or part of a skull. And there's actually, uh, there's the Lindo man um, in the UK. They just, they're not really creative. Like they're like, oh, we found this person in Tolland. We'll name him Tolland. Why not tame, like name him like Hans? Like he could have been a Hans. <laughs> You don't know. There might be a lot of other Hanses who died in that peat bog. Maybe. Also, maybe his family was the Tollins at one point in time, and that's why the area is named that. We don't know. That is a possibility we must consider. Um, But yeah, there's there's one particular bog in Lindo in the UK that has yielded like three or four bodies that are all men, and they just were like, this is Lindo Man 1. And over here, this fragment of a femur is Lindo Man too. <laughs> so. I'm gonna be real freaked out if we ever actually go visit a peat bog. Yeah. That I'm I'm just gonna like step on a body or like see an arm sticking out of the ground or something. Well, bring your shovel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm pretty sure peat bogs and the bog bodies are part of the inspiration for the dead marshes in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I was just gonna say this because the first time Kellen and I had this conversation, I was like, "Dang!" So it's just like basically Frodo is walking into Mordor, and there's all these bodies like staring up at him, mm-hmm. right? And and it's not like that at all. It's not like that uh, because they are buried under black sludge. <laughs> right. And, and the people who found these bodies, like the story you opened with in Denmark, mm-hmm. they, they were digging up the peat on yeah. purpose. They're excavating it. And so they found it buried. It mm-hmm. wasn't like they just were like, hey, is that a leg sticking out of the ground? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a little more... Although that did actually happen once. Oh. Someone was like, oh, here's this like big, particularly difficult chunk of peat. And they like... Then they realized underneath the sludge was a hand <laughs> or like a foot or something. Marcus first neighbor. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the it's not as uh, fanciful as Tolkien's Dead Marshes, um, but it's still it's pretty. Uh, there's been some literature that people have written about it, um, and there's actually um, a very famous Irish poet, um, Seamus Haney, I believe, um, who wrote a poem um, about the Tolland Man. Um, and I think it's just kind of one of those things because this is a really remarkable and in a weird way romantic look at history because there are these people who we don't know anything about them and we kind of kind of make these 
very educated guesses about who they were and why they died and how they died. Um, but they're time capsules in a really weird way. But yeah, this poem, which we can include on our blog at some point, is um, just about 12 or so stanzas about the Tolland man. Yeah, trove of the turf cutters, honeycombed workings, now his stained face reposes at our house. Yeah, we'll, ha- we'll, we'll get that online when, when we post this. I think that it's actually a very pretty poem, if a bit morbid. A little bit. Yeah. All uh, the best poetry is morbid, though. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of, of mummies and mummification, uh, sometimes people do this intentionally to themselves. So what I found uh, this past week was a story actually that came out in February. So pretty much what happened is uh, a statue of a Buddha, which they knew since the 90s, contained a person. It looked like a statue. If you were just looking at it, it looks like a statue. Uh, It's a man sitting in the lotus position with his legs crossed. In the 90s, they discovered that it it did have a body inside. And uh, what the reason this came up recently is uh, a team of researchers uh, from Holland actually did uh, CAT scans on it. Wait, so and they you... knew there was a dead body in there and chose to do, do nothing. Was it still on display after they found out? I'm actually going to get to what this thing is doing out there, or what this guy is doing out there. But So they run these CAT scans, and it's not just a skeleton. Like It's a, it's a very, very well-preserved full body. What? Uh, not quite as good as the bog bodies. Because uh, it's dried out, it's desiccated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was found in, uh, it was originally found in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. They think it's about a thousand years old. And that's based on dating that they've done on, they've, they've actually extracted little pieces of the body wow. uh, using an endoscope. So they put a little camera and collection drill apparatus, hole, drill into it. it. Yeah. Yep. Was the, um, did they do also carbon dating on the um, statue surrounding him? Was it stone? Sorry, we need to let you talk. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the sta- no, no, the, the statue around it is, uh, yeah, it's lacquered. So it's some sort of plaster, and then it has uh, lacquer, which is sort of another, it's sort of like varnish. It's like a plasticky yeah. substance to preserve I'm it. I'm familiar with lacquer. Oh, you know your Usually lacquers? Usually I know my liquors, but this time I do know some lacquers. All right, then. Lacquer. So yeah, it's, so it's plaster preserved with lacquer, and then with this monk inside. So is the lacquer like the same age as the monk? Well, what they think is that this so this process of self mummification is actually a tradition in certain uh, sects of Buddhism. So they think the mummy inside is about a thousand years old, uh, and they think the the statue, based on the dating they've done, is about two hundred years or so younger. So what it seems like happened is the monk self mummified, and I'm going to get into how he did that. It's a pretty it's a fascinating and horrifying process. Uh, he mummified himself. He would have been kept in the monastery on display as like an object of worship and also to inspire pilgrims to come and give donations. And when the other monks noticed that maybe he was starting to fall apart a little bit, need a little extra support, they encased him in this statue to further preserve him uh, and, and sort of keep him whole. But he was already in the right shape. Right. He was already in this sitting lotus position. That's how he died. This happened mostly in northern Japan. And the, the sect is Shingon Buddhism or True Word Buddhism. But sort of one of the the central practices is repetitive ritual meditation where they repeat mantras, they'll make certain devotional gestures, um, and they'll spend long periods of time in in deep meditation. And so this self-mummification, which uh, in Japanese is called sokushinbutsu, that's that's what you actually call one of these mummies, uh, was sort of the final and like ultimate act that a monk could do to prove 
or exercise his his buddhahood his his essence of being a buddha or being enlightened so what would actually happen and and this occurred between the like 11th and 19th centuries it was banned in 1879 because it was declared assisted suicide and it basically was assisted suicide over a very long period and so this was still happening in the 1900s uh 1800s. 1800s so yeah 1879 is when it was outlawed but it was still oh, happening wow. like right up to that point that anyone's aware of it's not happening now um it's because it has been outlawed and it's sort of fallen out of out of favor as, as you know a bit extreme uh but it did happen and there are actually 24 of these sokushin butsu who have been confirmed these are guys who mummified themselves remained in this lotus position and and remained whole enough that we still have them so do they now just, like, go around every time they find, like, a Buddha that happens to be semi-man-sized, like, cat-scanning it and making sure there's no dude in there? That I'm not sure. I think finding this mummy and realizing how well-preserved he was has definitely in- inspired that, that when you find something that's roughly man-sized and is, and is a statue, especially if it's connected to Shingon Buddhism, they'll look into it a little more closely. They'll they'll do these scans. But as as far as I could tell, this is the only one where it was sort of a big discovery at how well-preserved the mummy was inside. Um, but, it, but it is something that's fairly well-known um, to archaeologists. Because I was curious and I need hobbies, I wanted to see how could I mummify myself. Not a great hobby. It doesn't, it doesn't no, have staying power. It, I mean, it only has one possible end. <laughs> um, but the actual ritual is called Nujo. And the way it begins is for a thousand days, the monk would engage in really rigorous exercise every day. And he would have an extremely restricted diet of, uh, oddly enough, seeds and nuts and water. That was pretty much it. So for a thousand days, uh, a little over, what, two and a half, three years? Yeah. That doesn't seem uh, especially nutritious. No. That's why, I mean, (laughs) the statue was like not that big, if I recall correctly. I saw some pictures of it and it was like... Pretty sure that the mummy was like half of the size of like a real. It was yeah. He was a small, was like, f- small framed man. Oh my gosh. Yep. Well, when you're starving yourself for being anorexic for three years. Yeah, that's what, what it is. It was sort of enforced anorexia because the goal was to shed as much body fat as possible. So that's the first thousand days. The second thousand days, uh, he would eat only roots and pine bark, uh, and he would drink. Tasty. He would drink this tea called arushi. Uh, which contained sort of the essence of the Chinese lacquer tree. So it has this plasticky preservative substance in the tea, and you're consuming it on a daily basis, the idea being that it sort of permeates into your own body and will assist in preserving your body after you're dead. So hold on, because what you're describing sounds a lot like plastification uh, that like the bodies exhibit, the human bodies exhibit, actually does to, uh, let me be clear... Uh, dead people, <laughs> not living, because um, they'll inject this particular type of molten plastic throughout the entire body after it has been mostly drained of fluids. Oh, I didn't and know that. They go, okay. like, they inject it into the veins and stuff, and so they can care, like they can very, in a targeted way, preserve only the specific tissues that they're after. And so actually when you touch, like I've been to the bodies exhibit, I went, I think, in high school. They actually have organs that have been plasticized, and you can like pick up a liver, and it basically feels like you're... Like, you know how, like, the fake fruit <laughs> that you can buy? <laughs> yes. That's what it yep. feels like. So I want to know, have they, like, confirmed or denied the fact that this, like, Chinese lacquer tree actually 
is working in the way that they think it was. That's a good point, and that's actually something that's hard to to verify because we don't have that many data points. Well, you know what I'm really interested in knowing, and I bet if we did more research, we could find this out. His really specific diet would totally screw up the uh, the like the microfauna or whatever in his intestines. Like that's incredibly targeted diet. There is an unbelievable biome of bacteria that live in our intestines to help us digest different things. And if he's only eating seeds, well, there's a whole population of bacteria that will die off. And bacteria, as we know, has a huge role in the decomposition of bodies. So that could be part of the reason why he is so well-preserved. And maybe I'm stealing a little bit of your thunder. I don't know. No, that's a good point. But that is that he's killing off the organic bacterial cultures in his own body that would post-death have hastened the decomposition. Do you think all the saints did this before they died just to make sure that they could uh, be called saints later on? They just stopped eating any food that was I don't, bacteria? I don't This is uh, Tori's so. expert theological knowledge coming back into play. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably would have uh, rigorously practiced some transfiguration before heading to potions class. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I have seen a saint. That shit is weird. Well, yeah, that is pretty Yeah, I, when I was in Siena, they have uh, St. Catherine's head still preserved in one of the cathedrals. It is really creepy. There's, like, pieces of skin falling off of her face now. Uh, so it's haunting, and it has, definitely has a powerful effect. Maybe not the effect they intended on, on me, but, yeah. So it's Western religions do this, too. Lenin-esque, yeah. actually, because... It, Lennon, is Lennon still on display? He is, right? Because so. they've had to like re-embalm had him. To move him a couple times. Yeah, because yeah. he was like melting into the cushions or something really gross. <laughs> I really <laughs> wish you could see Tori's expression. <laughs> with my, I have a way with words, but uh, yeah, no, they had to do that a couple of times because what I really need in my life right now is some liquid Lennon, <laughs> aka vodka. <laughs> Save that drink idea. <laughs> the liquid linen. Cut that out. Cut that out of the podcast. That never happened. <laughs> um, but going along with your point, Kellen, yes, he was. So he was. Now that I think about it, yeah, he was starving out a lot of the bacteria in his own body mm-hmm. that would have helped sort of rot him after he died. There's also some speculation. Some sources indicate that in this Rushi tea wasn't just this lacquer substance, but small amounts of arsenic poison. So that, on top of everything else, would have killed a lot of the bacteria. Um, so it also would have had a it also would have had a preservative effect on his on his tissues. So that's two thousand days. He's got the rigorous exercise, the restricted diet, then the even more restricted diet, and drinking this the diet of poison. Uh, this please. rather toxic tea. Yeah. I mean, sorry, I'm just thinking about this. We're talking two thousand days. That's like almost six years. Yep. Whole process takes over eight years. So you're yeah. sitting with your suicide mm-hmm. and being completely okay with it for eight years. Not only that, but you're like, not living a, a comfortable life. That is eight years of extreme discomfort. Yeah, so, like, I know that a lot of being a monk is, like, this ascete, like, kind of, you know, living a very sparse, only what you need, right? Like, I think the Buddha ate, like, a one grade of rice a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story goes, yeah. But also improbable. Continue. <laughs> I just don't like. I have a whole new respect for these people who are that dedicated to you know their meditation and their practice that they're going to be just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die, but it's going to be eight years away, and I'm I'm making sure that it happens. This every second. This took an incredible amount of endurance. 
Um, yeah, how do you not die for eight years when you're doing this? I bet, well, we, I bet you that some did, and then they wouldn't have yeah. been preserved. Many, they, they think ten, over the over the centuries, tens of thousands of monks tried this. And again, we only have 24 that we can confirm. And and that 24 number is, is I'm, there's a lot of confidence in that number because the monasteries would do a good job of preserving the body afterwards if these guys were successful. Well, so like they, a marketing tool. Right. So yeah. they would keep it. So you would think if there were actually more out there, the monastery would be pretty open about having one because they want to attract uh, patrons. What's crazy about this to me is that you're saying this, when did you say this guy is a thousand years old, right? So they were doing this and they had these techniques for self mummification a thousand years ago and earlier, most likely, which like this diet, the rigorous exercise, the, uh, the arsenic, the tea, like that's really sophisticated. That's like an incredibly sophisticated, extremely drawn out, painful, miserable suicide but it's pretty remarkable because how do they arrive at this particular combination of like these are the seeds that you should eat and then you're gonna eat bark and then if you're still alive after that you're gonna do these things like how what was the trial and error like i want to know who discovered this this method he probably mummified himself around the year uh 1000 and shingon buddhism came to japan around like the 790s, mm-hmm. right up through the That's crazy. the 1100, the 12th century. So it's around that time that that this sect of Buddhism sort of uh, arises in Japan. And yeah, they were probably experimenting with it for a couple hundred years before they started to find a successful kind of formula. But those first couple guys, man, they were not not only had the endurance, but were very brave to try this. It's crazy. Let me let me finish up because that's only the first 2,000 days, you guys. There's the third thousand days. So. What happens is in this in the second thousand day period where he's drinking this tea, at the end of that thousand days, he is buried alive in a stone tomb. And he's given a bamboo pipe through which to breathe. So he's breathing through this pipe. He's in const- a con- now a constant state of meditation. He would uh, enter a trance. Every morning they would check on him. And if when they went to check on him, he rang a bell. He would have a little string attached to his hand. If he rang the bell, they knew he was still alive, and they would leave him alone and come back the next day. The day they would come back and the bell did not ring, that's how they knew he was dead. From that day, they would begin counting the third set of 1,000 days. They would leave him there dead in the stone tomb for 1,000 days. So what if you die and you accidentally die not in the lotus position? Uh, That would have been considered not fully completing the, the ritual. But when he... When he was buried in this tomb, he would have been in this in, in the lotus position already, and it's very confining. So he wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to move much. This is a nightmare. Yeah, this oh, is yeah. like a human bonsai. Like he would have just been put in the tomb, and he can't move out of the yep. position. Bonsai kittens. He's buried alive. He can't move. He has but one tube to breathe through, and a little bell to signal people that he's not dead yet. This is this is my nightmare. This, this is, is awful, horrifying. <laughs> Tori, I don't think I'm that scared about your one leg in the peat bog anymore. Um, <laughs> I don't think Mark was that scared about peat bogs anymore either. He no, I'm okay. With Everybody should bog. move to peat bogs. <laughs> Guys, move back to the peat bogs. <laughs> Stay away. See as far away as possible we'll from to you. Shingon Buddhism. You or... don't just need to drink poison tea. Oh my god. So so yeah, he's so at this point he's buried alive. When he finally dies, they leave him in there for another thousand days. At the end of the thousand days, they exhume his body. A normal body would have rotted. 
if when they dig him up, he's relatively still well-preserved, the ritual has worked, and they recognize him as having instantly become a Buddha. And he's considered a perpetual living Buddha, not just a dead person who had Buddhahood in his life. He was actually seen as, now that he's self-mummified, he's in a perpetual state of prayer. So what I want to know is, so now we've talked about two religions where if your body somehow remains preserved after your death for X amount of time, you are, uh, I don't want to use the word vilified here, uh, deified? No, beatification. Beatified, yeah. Yeah. Or canonized, maybe, is the word you're looking for? Yeah, beatification is like the first step. Yeah, canonized. Yeah. So you become a saint, basically, right? Like, so you're instantly a Buddha. So where does this idea of, is it just like this like weird magic thing that they saw these people who, for some reason, didn't decompose in the way that was normal mm-hmm. back in the day and then just decided, like, oh, this is magic? Well, if you think about saint. it, death and how death works would have been extremely familiar to people in... Uh, not not just prehistory, which is what the case of the bog bodies are, but um, Middle Ages up to um, honestly the 1900s, because you there you are slaughtering animals and there are uh, you are hunting animals and you are seeing up close and personal exactly what happens. People would hold wakes in their house the day or two after someone had died, and already the decomposition process has begun. So if you do encounter a body that has not decomposed in the manner that you have witnessed yourself, um, that would be pretty shocking, right? I mean, that would yeah, be... Yeah, no, I think so. I just wonder, like, yeah. how the first saint was... Um, like, how, how did they... How did this start? I mean, yeah. I think what's most impressive is that long-term dedication to this process. So you've got the incredible endurance. You have, you have this undying belief that what you're doing is... Not a devotion, because devotion wouldn't really apply so much to Buddhism, but this dedication to sort of annihilating the self. Uh, Not annihilating in the sense of destruction, but in in like surpassing your physical body. So these rituals of essentially starving yourself, exercising yourself to death, drinking very toxic substances for years at a time, um, if, if one could endure that, if one could make it through that, uh, and maintain a sort of a composure and calmness about it. That that serenity is sort of what signaled one's Buddhahood. And so, if you if if you possessed that your body, it was believed your body would be one of these self mummifying bodies successfully. When they found bodies that had rotted for whatever reason, maybe they um, you know didn't drink enough urushi, uh, they were still seen with respect. Obviously, because they had gone through this ordeal, um, but they weren't considered Buddhas in the same way as the as these guys who were able to to mummify. So yeah, it's a real denial of of self. So these Sokushin Butsu, pretty rare. Um, but yeah, this this guy who's now encased in a statue is the one of the best examples we have of this of this tradition. That's horrifying. I, like I understand, but I am not quite at the at the. I respect that point. <laughs> I'm just yeah, I, that's horrifying. I mean, I, I I respect it. I mean, just holy shit. Just like sting. I mean, I'm not listening to your music, but I do respect the fact that yeah. you can get that out. No, you definitely need to keep that in. Yeah, okay, that's I'm keeping that in. That's okay. I guess the last point I'll make is it was one of the central uh, 
beliefs of the of Shingon Buddhism too that um, the full idea is Sokushin Jobutsu, which is the idea that all living things have the potential for Buddhahood. So you could also see the ritual as uncovering this essence by taking away all of these material necessities and pleasures that the body doesn't need. It's not really essential to to the spirit for that. So yeah, so crazy. we've got laws that just won't seem to die because our cultures become too used to them. And then we've got bog bodies that won't seem to go away. <laughs> <laughs> they keep finding them. They keep finding them. And some of them seem like they were just unlucky individuals. Others may have been ritualistically yeah. sacrificed. And then we have these uh, sokushinbutsu mummifying themselves, letting themselves be starved, worked so hard that they lose all their body fat, and then buried alive. All in the name of so enlightenment. enlightenment I yeah. really, I really am excited about History on the Rocks. I'm not that excited about History on the Rocks as <laughs> these monks were excited about Buddhism. So well, you wouldn't uh, self-mummify yourself? In the I, name of our podcast? Club? I'm about to self-medicate myself. <laughs> we have been doing that we, all night. <laughs> I mean, the alcohol has preservative properties. Yeah. So that's what I keep telling myself. I'm well just preserving my liver for posterity. Exactly. We're well on our way. In one year. To enlightenment. A thousand days. <laughs> one thousand, see you guys back here in a thousand days. We'll begin <laughs> part two. Yeah. Where you'll only hear one of us talk because that's the person that had to bury the other two alive. Uh, so I checked on Kellen today. She's still ringing her bell. Uh, I guess I'll come back later. Um, Day 999. <laughs> still ring bell. And she won't stop ringing it. I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean that something's not horribly wrong. Um, so yeah, wow, that was a hell of a heavy episode this week. We should put some trigger warnings on that shit. Trigger warning? Uh, I'm not kidding. <laughs> being buried alive? Yeah, dude. We talked about suicide. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't want to be ritually killed for a good harvest. I don't want that to happen. Signing off, but not permanently. So. Signing off. To, to, oh, my Twitter handle is at Bad Historian. So if you have any questions uh, you'd like me to look into or bring up on the podcast or maybe in a blog post, let me know. Uh, I'll do my best to, uh, to answer that for you. But... Thanks for listening. As you know, we are History on the Rocks. Um, you can find us on our website right now, www.historyontherocks.com. Uh, we should also be heading up to iTunes and SoundCloud very shortly. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Hist on the Rocks, on Facebook slash History on the Rocks, and on Instagram slash History on the Rocks. See you there.